the title of my stray thoughts for tonight uh, is awful. And uh, it may be funny as I say it, but uh, it's the only word that I can think of for uh, for the uh, the fact of this um, unspeakable uh, atrocity that has happened to all beings in the last. Uh, 24 hours, a little more than 24 hours ago, the, the bombing at the marathon in Boston. And I realize as I say that, that I've given a, a kind of special place to this particular heinous crime, but this happens everywhere. It happens so many places. And it's bec- once it becomes, once it's on our land, it becomes important to us. And so I don't want to in any way uh, elevate it in importance beyond any other uh, awful, awful uh, act, but to uh, let it be the reminder that really, really awful things happen. And beings can be really awful, really evil. And this is part of our part of our condition as human beings. And so I'm sure some of you have reflected on you know, how, to, how to be with this, this terrible event. And, you know, I wanted to, as a group, think about all the, the beings affected by this, to have our hearts just wide open, Unbound, taking every single person into the vastness of our being and cradle them. All the, the immediate victims, all the near and dear ones to the victims, to the communities that have been affected, to the country, the, to the whole world, because you know this does not happen to, uh, to just those people who are most immediately affected. It affects everyone. I found this quote this evening from Francis Thompson. One could not pluck a flower without troubling a star. And John Muir, uh, those of you who are not San Francisco, don't know much about California history and John Muir, Muir Woods, He said, when we try to pick anything out by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. I'll read it again. When we try to pick anything out by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. So there's no doubt that that every act, individually, collectively, every act of body, speech, and mind ripples and affects all beings. Anybody who lives in the delusion, which we tend to, uh, that we exist independently apart from each other, are, we're asleep. We just don't, we don't realize we are all so deeply interwoven. So you may wonder, you wake up and you may wonder why you're sad. It may just be, it may be the sadness that comes from your own personal circumstances, what you've been thinking about, but sometimes it's just universal sadness. 
It's the sadness for the fact that beings tend to, in the course of their lives, be often governed by one, what the Buddha called the three poisons, greed, hatred, and ignorance. And it tends to lead to, uh, to, uh, to an obliviousness uh, of our impact on each other. And the more oblivious, the more we can do things without empathy, without sensitivity, and to whatever obliviousness we have within our own mind that's some measure, just like the, those who could actually be the perpetrators of such crimes, uh, in some whatever measure of obliviousness we have, uh, allows us to be able to just go on with our lives, uh, perhaps as though nothing happened. So at these moments after a big disaster like this uh, reminds us to, if we're open at all right now, if we're a little bit, if we've been, if the crack has been, if the light has gotten in and the, our caring and love is flowing a little more than usual, more appreciation of our existence, our life, and, and more, more uh, empathy and compassion for all those victims in this world, and maybe even during this time, all those perpetrators in this world, to open our hearts to even those, maybe even especially those who are so deluded, so disembodied, so cut off from the flow of life that think that there could be some morality or some, some justification for killing indiscriminately. Anyone who has that, that level of delusion needs our heart, needs our, our caring. And that's hard to do because you want to, especially if we feel threatened and people now feel unsafe, that's the, that's the goal of terrorism. But when we feel threatened, what do we tend to do? It's built into our brain as our conditioning, we tend, to, we tend to get angry, we tend to strike out, we tend to, that, there's a direct correlation between feeling threatened and being aggressive. And that's even the, it, this is, even the neurologists or the, the neuroscientists have really studied this, what gets activated in the brain. But nevertheless, as, as Dharma students, as people who, and I say Dharma students means those who are interested in awakening, interested in not being simply bound in biology, in conditioned reactions, but to, to expand beyond ordinary conditioning, to, uh, to see things from a, in, from a deeper place, you might say. For those of us or you who are interested this is the time where we want to um, expand our love, not our hatred. Because the central passage in the, uh, the compilation of the Buddha's teachings that probably is the most famous, called the Dhammapada, this is, a, um, this is what the Buddha said. And it's the title of this little mini sutra is Hatred Never Dispels Hatred. 
Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hatred. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? So how do we practice, how do we deal with this? How, I'm curious how you've been dealing with it today and yesterday. Kevin, please. Just one second, for those who are listening who may not be able to hear what he was saying, that his daughter who lives in Ireland Skyped a friend who was at the, um, who lives in, who goes to Harvard, and, and she was about to go jogging to the finish line of the Boston Marathon, and, they, and she said, I'd rather talk to you. They stayed on the line, and had she not, had they not spoken, they, she may have uh, arrived right at the, at near the time that the bombs went off, and Speaking of the interdependence and interconnection of everything, the second thing. Every single day, multiple bombings. Yes, we become inured to. Every day. That's right. <coughs> Happens everywhere. Yeah, let's not forget. Please. I think I think we need the microphone if you don't. One second. Thank you, Tara. I really appreciate it. Um, I just want to say how grateful I am to hear both of you say that uh, and speak with such a uh, awareness uh, because of how this happens every day, everywhere in the world. 
And um, I've been kind of afraid to even say that to anyone or speak up about that. Uh, so uh, I was surprised and, and grateful to hear both of you mention that Thank you. it's Thank everywhere. You. Thank you. Anyone else? Uh, Madison, take the microphone if you don't mind. I have a few more things after Madison speaks. Yeah, I don't have this really wrapped up, but I just thought about everything it would take to prepare for a marathon and how it's the most exquisite sense of accomplishment of the body and what one does, and then to suddenly be blown to bits or for people who will end up in a wheelchair. Um, I just can barely hold that. It, it just, um, that part of it is really stunning for me. Yes, it's really, it's quite stunning. Yeah, it's really impossible to, to bear completely, to take it all in, be able to completely digest it. But this is, uh, all we can do is experience it directly in our own way, hopefully as open-hearted as possible. A few weeks ago, I read a, a story about the Dalai Lama, and unfortunately, the, the uh, recording of it did not take, so this gives me the opportunity to share it again tonight. And I think it can really, hopefully, help us in knowing how to be with uh, this whole situation and or with any situation where we are faced where we come face to face with uh, the unspeakable kinds of suffering so bear with me if you heard it a few weeks ago this is written by Ted Wilson who was a former mayor of Salt Lake City this is from the Salt Lake City uh, Tribune. One by one last week, the tiny bodies, this was after the Sandy Hook uh, massacre. One by one last week, the tiny bodies of 20 children were laid to rest, as well as the adult heroes who died trying to protect them. We won't soon forget the Sandy Hook school shootings. The pain runs straight to our nation's marrow. The process of mourning these victims of unspeakable violence stretches so far out and for so long. How to begin to understand such grief, whether in your own life or collectively as a citizen of this troubled country? In 1997, I traveled to Dharamsala, India. My former wife, Kathy, and my sister-in-law, Mary Lee, had grown close to the Tibetan community that had resettled in Utah. Perhaps overly impressed with my status as former Salt Lake City mayor, the Tibetans had arranged for me to meet the Dalai Lama and to invite him to Utah. I looked forward to meeting His Holiness, much like any lucky tourist would. I sought no great religious or transformational experience. I admired the Dalai Lama's history as an expatriate from communist China and his reputation as a man of peace. I carried letters from Governor Mike Levitt and business leaders and other documents to formally invite the great leader to Utah. 
I had no idea how deeply spiritual our visit would become. The meeting with His Holiness would rank as one of the most emotional, treasured moments of my life, along with the births of my children, climbing high mountain peaks, and other deeply personal experiences. As we ambled along the streets of Dharamsala, the morning of our appointment with His Holiness, we met by sheer coincidence a Utah couple. They had stayed for several days hoping for some way to meet with the Dalai Lama. We offered to see if they might join us. After relaying passport numbers and other security information, they were granted permission to come along. We entered the Dalai Lama's residence, each holding a white Buddhist blessing scarf. He placed the scarves around our necks and uttered a few blessing words. We sat on comfortable couches with the holy man, surrounded by a group of muscular monks. I surmised that they were the security detachment. The Dalai Lama opened with small talk, his wit and iconic smile bringing resonant laughter from the guards, a group of designated laughers, I thought, with some amusement. We formally invited him to Utah, then suddenly the formality dissolved. Looking intently at the couple that had joined us that morning, and with no visible cue from anyone, he said, You are sad. Our new friends broke down. Through gentle sobs, they explained their young son had recently committed suicide. A pause hung in the air. The Dalai Lama simply waited and waited. As we muffled sobs, His Holiness slid across the couch and reached for the couple's faces. Grasping their cheeks, he pulled their faces next to his. He held them for perhaps a minute and an eternity for such an intimacy. And then he said softly, simply, sad. He offered no other words, no assurance of heaven as we Westerners have come to expect when dissecting death. He explained nothing. There was no utterance of time heals, no niceties that God needed him elsewhere, nothing. The tears ceased. It was time to leave. So for me, the, one of the feelings was sad, but it was also the feeling of awful. Awful. Nothing... No sugarcoating. No embellishing. Just awful, awfully sad. And our practice asks us to just take it in. Not immediately look for solutions, reasons, someone to blame, someone to strike out at. To find what what we call equanimity, to sit in the middle of it, to see whether I like it or not, whether I understand it or not, things are as they are. And to say to 
myself, and to everyone I know who suffers. I care about your suffering. I care about you. I care about this. It's, a, it's all our hearts can do. It's I care. Now, if we, are, if we are prone to hide away in fear, dullness, distraction, then we can, we can in, the, in the training of our hearts, we can, we can teach ourselves to move toward awful, move toward sadness, to open. And we can do that very formally in the teachings of the training of compassion. We, we bring, we think, first of all, if we're training, we think of the person or people who we know right now are suffering. We bring them into our mind's eye, into our heart. We try to really resonate with them. And then moment by moment, very deliberately, with, um, with a, trying to hold the meaning of what we're saying, the felt experience of that person or those people, and we say, I care about you. I care about you. May your suffering be eased. And we do it over and over and over until we actually can feel it. So that it's not just an exercise, not just a way of making us feel better, but it's really joining in the, in the current of life, in the reality of what's happening. So to me, that's the, that's the first and most important thing that I can do is just feel it, join with it, and make it an ongoing practice not to turn away from pain. At the same time, it's to respect our own capacity to accommodate pain. And it's a process. For some people, I know people who are in my orbit who said, I don't want to hear about it. Any of you know anyone like that? I heard enough already. And because whatever, for whatever reason, I imagine that it brought up feelings that could not be contained so easily because that person is not so practiced at accommodating. We're great at thinking about feelings. We're not so good at feeling them. So that's the other thing. It's learning how to, how to feel the flow of emotion. It is, is, it is nature as it expresses itself in our body. It's the weather. It's the winds of, of feeling. And we've managed somehow to not uh, complain so much about the, the changes in the external weather, but we, we, don't have, we don't seem to have a clue about how to deal with the internal weather. So all of this really affects our capacity to accommodate uh, and join with the family of beings because we, no matter how much you turn away, you, it's still affecting you. And you have to get really tight not to feel the effect of something like the last few days. One second. No, Amy's chomping at the bit. 
Do you have the microphone? Excuse me. Please. <laughs> what do you do with anger? How do you deal with it? Sadness. But what do you do with the anger? What do I do with the sadness? No, I know what to do with the sadness. I wonder what to do with the anger. What to do with the anger? Because, and not like I don't want to hear about Boston, but... In general? No, no. I, I meant because of the violent in the world every day, the violence that happens here in the, our the, own... The violence in the world every day. You know, down the street, I almost tripped over someone um, who was sleeping. And, you know, that violence, that person should not be sleeping on the street. In the richest country in the world, and I know I'm speaking to people who would probably agree with me. Yeah. But um, no, the anger because what's gonna come from what happened yesterday? It's is the heightened xenophobia. That's already in the air. Yes, that's and, true. you know, my and mother said, well, they'd say it's a man with dark skin. It's like, yeah, and... Yes, there is a, yeah, there is a tendency... a lot of people. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, what, you're going to say, oh, it was a blonde man with blonde hair, so we're going to look at... Every blonde man. Yes. So, so the, I, the ignorance, the ignorance, yeah, and the, the scapegoating will not stop. And just like, there? just like after nine eleven, the yeah. the message was go shopping. Yeah. Keep the economy ticking. So th that is the that is the nature of our of our state of our um, development. We are. We are at the, at one in one hand we are have this amazing capacity for wisdom and clear seeing like you're describing. I mean the. We have an amazing capacity, and we have the equal and opposite capacity to be completely deluded. And one of the things that keeps us completely deluded is to fall is is to harden in our reactivity, and even our reactivity to ignorance. So we don't want the, we, we naturally feel a kind of recoiling or an anger, but we don't want it to land. We don't want it to harden. And so the, just as that Dhammapada says, hatred never ceases by hatred, by love alone. So whatever way that you can, you can turn toward your anger with compassion, first of all, attend to that feeling of anger. Save it for the next day. Don't dump it. You can speak with passion, as you did tonight, about the, the ignorance, and that's one of the ways of expressing it. One of the ways of discharging it is to, is to tell the truth. But try not to add to the burden of anger, which is heavy enough. So that may not be satisfying, but 
you have to first and foremost feel it. Usually, if you can sit with anger, not the story of anger, the story, if you keep fomenting the story and repeating in your mind how terrible the world is and how ignorant everybody is, you just keep triggering the cause of more anger. If, on the other hand, you notice that the feeling of anger arises when you reflect, when you have these experiences and then reflect on them, you see that there's a, a causal relationship between how much I think about something and, and repeat it over and over. So instead of doing that, you feel it. Anger feels like this. It burns. It eats me up. It doesn't help anything. I need, I need love here. I need attention. I'm burning up with anger. And if you actually feel it, you can't help, your heart can't help but open to yourself, first of all, and then have a deep understanding of how it is for other people walking around with hatred and causing enormous suffering because of it. So it becomes, your, it becomes a compassion uh, medicine instead of, instead of uh, the cause for more anger. So hatred never ceased by hatred by love alone. Please. I have just a short, uh, a really short um, formula. It came up when I was angry, driving somebody um, across, uh, and I got so upset. And then I, uh, the formula just came in and I said, may you be happy, may I forgive myself. May I forgive myself? And all of a sudden, my anger diminished. So may now, you be happy, and may I forgive myself. And I'm using it from time to time now. <laughs> Great. Beautiful. Well, we're actually coming to the end of our time, but I wanted to just say a few more things about um, what I think is as important um, whether you're interested or not. I think that it's really important not to um, forget the possibility of experiencing joy and happiness. And I love this passage also from the Dhammapada where the Buddha said, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy and health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace, even among the troubled. Look within. Be still. Free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So know that no matter how, how terrible, how awful, there is in the midst of it all a capacity for, for peace and for joy. And as Jack Gilbert shares in his poem called A Brief for the Defense, which I like to read here, we, we need this in this world, I think. He says, sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else. With flies in their nostrils, 
with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what life wants. Otherwise, the mornings before dawn could not have been made so fine. The Bengal Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness of their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. Their laughter, there is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can, we can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the demons. If the locomotive of life runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes, one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. A brief for the defense. So we have to open to the, the joys and the sorrows. And I think I'll leave you with a poem written by one of my colleagues um, who I just had a senior moment. <laughs> he moved to Mexico. Anyway, his poem is called Holy Facts. I am the airwaves. I am the movement of insects and birds. I am what happens before birth. I am the sound before words and the movement of thoughts. There is only where I come from, and that is no place for I am before space. And time is only the measurement of my beauty. I am before anything is and what everything becomes. Out of me is the holy child. When you listen, you can hear me. When you receive on your tongue, you can taste me. I am what you feel. There is no limit to my happiness and no bottom to my sorrow. No whales imprison me and no freedom sets me free. For I am already the inside and the outside. Look for me anywhere and I will be what you see before color and line become form. I am unexplainable. Screams are in me and walks along the sea. Forests are in me and stars as far as you can see. Baskets of flowers, hammers and nails and carpenters and their smiles, windows and blades of grass, Shoelaces, ice skates, rivers, canals, and fires in lonely caves, fur blankets and daisies, pinups and staples and Wall Street, coal mines and rockets. I'm the one that thoughts drift within. Everyone knows who I am.
So this is, of course, a reminder to rest in the middle of it all, in that boundless, impartial openness that, that includes everything. And you are that. So let's just sit for a moment. And hold in our hearts all beings everywhere without exception who are suffering, who are victims, who are perpetrators, those who are being born and those who are dying, those in happy circumstances and those in unhappy. Let our hearts be filled with all beings. And let's share the blessings, any goodness, any merit, any benefits of our time together and radiate toward all of us a deep wish that we can find happiness and peace and the causes of happiness and peace increasing in our lives and in our mind, that all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing a deep wish that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that is without sorrow, here and now, in the middle of it all. And a deep wish that all beings can find serenity and equanimity, able to meet the unspeakable sorrows and the greatest joys with less reactivity, less grasping and aversion. And a deep wish that our life Our work, our practice is each day, each moment dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be touched by love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. May all beings be liberated. Good luck with your hearts, and thanks for listening, thanks for participating, and hope to see you Saturday, half day, Sunday, half day. Please come as an act of support for your fellow yogis. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.